As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. Hi friends, the Australian True Crime Notice Board looks like this. Ron Idle's October show sold out. Charlie Bazina October lunchtime show at the Yarraville Club in October couple of tickets still available. How delightful. You can find the link on all our socials or go straight to the Yarraville Club's website. 
Narelle Fraser's special Q&A for patrons only. A couple of tickets still available by clicking the secret link on our Patreon page. You can become a patron for as little as $2 US a month by going to patreon.com forward slash Pod. that's A-U-S-T, True Crime Pod, and you'll receive every episode a day early and without ads from now on. Thank you to these good people for becoming patrons. Gillian Jager, or is it Jaeger? Probably Jaeger. Gillian Jaeger? Gillian Jaeger. How would you say that? Dunno. It's up to you. Michelle Freeman, Rochelle Cox, Leah, just one name. Caitlin, just one name. Nicole Sheard, Heather Ledbetter. That's such a good one, isn't it? Just feels good in your mouth. Heather Ledbetter, Jaden Liu, Liu, Jaden Liu, Liu, Kristen Naylor, Simon Walker. Simon never gets to watch the live stuff, he says. He probably means the Saturday night YouTube live at 8 o'clock. Well, stay home, mate. I mean, that's all you got to do. Stay home. Bree Cook. I think it's Bree or is it Bri? Is it Bri for Bryony? Or is it Bree as in Breezer? Don't know, but hello and thanks. Julie Martin has been waiting since day one for her shout out. Julie, I'm so bad at admin, but thank you. Thank you very much. VJ Gibbo, thank you. Pauline Stephen, thank you so much. And Jodie Maslin. Hello, Jodie. Jodie is probably listening to this as she drives to work at 4.30 in the morning. And then when she gets there, she'll chat about it with a girl at work. Good on you, Jode. And there's a lot to chat about in today's episode. So good on you, girls. Thank you very much. And last but not least, I've saved my favourite name for today, Megan Tulapong. Yeah, listen to how it even, it's hard for me to say it without popping in the microphone. Megan Tulapong. It's hard to, I'll I'll put my mouth on the side. Megan Tulapong. That was better. So I'm just going to leave it there because names don't get any better than that. Good on you, Megan. Thank you. Okay, on with the show. The following podcast contains accounts of sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. And it's a shame. You you don't speak about it because you just feel such guilt and shame and that you're so dirty and disgusting and that you must have brought it on yourself. Margaret Harrod and her twin brother Michael were the first-born children into a family that would become much admired in their community, and never more so than when both twins announced they'd been called to serve God. Margaret as a nun, and Michael as a priest. They both left their country home and moved to Sydney to join the Salesian Order in the late 70s. But although their father always liked to have a very high profile in the church community, and was over the moon about Michael's impending priesthood, he wasn't happy about Margaret leaving for the convent for reasons that will become apparent. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. The Catholic Church's journey toward truth and integrity is ongoing and traumatic at every turn. But Catholicism has a rich history of celebrating the bravery of unlikely heroes of people who somehow find the capacity to dig deep and stand up against enormous odds. 
people who seem to have a limitless well of courage where there really shouldn't be any. People whose faith in their God proves to be stronger than anything any human can throw at them. Margaret Harrod is one such person. So years ago, um, I started to actually jump up and down a bit um, within the church circles and trying to, to speak out about the, the wrongs, particularly with pedophilia by priests. That's been really such an evolution in recent history. So where were we at publicly in that evolution when you started speaking out? So back in 2004... Wow, okay. That's that's when it started um, and that stemmed from the fact that Michael, my twin brother, um, he had been accused of an act of indecency to a boy, now obviously a man, and that report was in the Age newspaper in, in Melbourne and Michael had already been accused several times but nothing, it, it had been hushed up basically by the church. So in 2004, stories were certainly out there in the media. It wasn't as broadly accepted as it is today that it was a huge problem in the Catholic Church. There were still a lot of denialists out there. Oh, totally right. Totally right. Yes. And that's where the um, when this age report came out, I think it was probably, you know, the beginning of the church starting to get twitched. Uh, because things, stories were starting to to come out more and more, but it certainly was beginning uh, very early days. And with this article, there was a photo of Michael, and at the time, Michael was a principal of a um, K to twelve school in Port Pirie in South Australia. So the Salesian, the order he belonged to, they said to him, "Right, you've got to you've got to basically disappear." So he was made to pack his bags and move overnight, mm. um, and he had nowhere to go because uh, he couldn't go to another Salesian house. Um, they were trying to keep it all quiet, um, and I suppose the Salesians had to be seen to actually take some action. So Michael ended up in my on my doorstep in Canberra, and he stayed with us for about six months. And then he went off. The Salesians uh, basically made him because he said, I don't want to do it, I don't want to do it. But they made him do a six-month, you know, supposedly rehabilitation course. Um, It was in Sydney. We weren't supposed to know any of the details. It was all hush-hush and, you know, secret. Um, So he went off to there. Now, when Michael left us to go to do that course, I actually pretty well fell apart because I'd been trying to hold it together while Michael was with us with in my heart knowing that I was convinced that Michael had actually offended um, so that he actually had sexually abused people. I had no doubt that the boy who'd come forward um, was telling the truth. Um, and I tried to get Michael to just open up and talk to me, but he refused. He he was very silent for most of that time he was with us. How were you so confident? I mean, as we were saying a minute ago, at that time, there were a lot of Catholics who couldn't believe that of clergy. 
there are a lot of people who find that difficult to believe of family members. This was your twin brother who had been a hero in your family. Everyone in the family had been ever so proud of Michael your entire lives as he had moved his way through the priesthood. How, how were you so sure? Oh, intuitively I knew and it stemmed right back to many years prior to that. So we're probably looking um, the 70s, 80s early 80s when I I was um I was a I'd just um been made a nun and I was visiting a family with Michael um so he was training for the priesthood and this was a family that he'd visited regularly and become very very friendly with the mother and father and their three children um and the day I was visiting we were there having afternoon tea and Michael was sitting opposite me. I was sitting on a lounge. He was sitting opposite me on a, a chair and he had their youngest daughter on his lap and her back was against his chest and her legs basically splayed, you know, she was just sitting there. And Michael started rubbing her groin with his hand. And I just remembered like I can still feel it, the shock of observing Michael do things that I thought, oh, my God, that's like what my father does to me or did oh, to me. Oh, and wow. and it was just like I couldn't believe it. And, I mean, at this point I still had never told anybody about my father sexually abusing me, which had gone on since, you know, I was about two. Um so to actually see my my beloved twin brother doing the same sort of behaviour, I I just was overcome. I just thought, oh, my God. And then so the only way I think I could justify that in my own thinking was, no, he, he, he's not doing what I think he's doing. Like he just doesn't realise what he's doing. Um, and so basically I shut that right down. So for a couple of days it tormented me and then I just convinced myself, no, 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 he, he loves this family, he loves the kids. Mike would never do anything like that. So I buried it. Um, and so it was years later that I actually, uh, when I was about 29, that I first uttered the words that my father had sexually abused me and it it was then I still didn't really think about Michael because, as I said, I'd convinced myself, well, he couldn't possibly do that, you know. <laughs> he couldn't. He was a priest. He was my twin brother. You know, I knew my twin brother. So then in 2004, when that Age article was published that he'd been accused of sexually abusing a boy, it just came flooding back to me, that vision of the little girl sitting on Michael's lap. And I thought, oh, my God. You know, it's true. Um, and as I said intuitively in my heart, I, th I knew. I, I, I knew it was true. So as I say, while he was staying with us, I tried to get him to just talk to me and, you know, that I wanted to support him, and but he wouldn't do it. And so when he left, as I said previously, I, I just fell apart. And I'd actually, Rod, my wonderful husband, in, he knew about my father abusing me, but I'd never told him that I'd actually been abused by two Salesian priests as well. 
So it becomes a sort of a big complex circle of, of abuse and interactions and and so when Michael left, I broke down and I told Rod that I'd actually been abused by two two priests too. So not only priests, but the priests that belonged to the order that Michael was a priest of, and I was actually a Salesian nun. So I was all part of that like one great big community, real family. I I then decided that I was going to contact the church. Catholic Church. So I went to the organisation called Towards Healing, which was set up to handle cases of, you know, accusing people of sexual abuse, etc. And so they did a big investigation and had interviews with me. And um, yeah, it, part of the fallout of that was I went to Broken Rights, which is an organisation that it's volunteers basically who investigate claims of sexual abuse within the church as a whole. I went to them. They already knew of Michael and had written various articles and reports on Michael. You know, I was put in touch with various people to chat to that were also investigating um, sexual abuse, the issue within the church. And I was finally asked to be interviewed on um, Steve Weizard's Melbourne radio show. So that was, I don't know what you may be, I'm thinking 2011, but it could have even been before that. Well, 2011, I'm reading, was the year that Michael pleaded guilty. So was it around then? No, it was before that. Do you think? Yeah. So maybe 2010? Yeah, something like that, 29, 2010. Mm. And Sue Smethurst actually heard me being interviewed. And then um, she wanted to contact me and the other person who um, heard that radio interview was the detective that had been investigating Michael's cases. Um, So he contacted me as well. So it started this whole, you know, snowball effect of actually being given more and more opportunity to actually speak the truth you know, like even coming on your your program today, I, I feel very blessed actually that I've actually been provided with opportunities to speak my truth and to speak the truth on behalf of other victims. Yeah, having been victimised as a child by your own parent, mm. I can't imagine how isolating that is and how much that informs your brain as it's growing that you are silenced Oh, totally. And as I said, I was 29 um, before I actually uttered the words, my father sexually abused me, and that was all I could get out. Who did you say that to at 29? Well, I said it to a priest who recognised that I needed to get professional counselling. He organised that for me. Unfortunately, that same priest ended up sexually abusing me and taking advantage of me. So it... The whole thing's horrendous. Yeah. <laughs> the whole complex issue of sexual abuse is just horrendous. It's hard enough that my father sexually abused me for so many years and so frequently. I mean, it ended up it was virtually daily that my father um, abused me. The psychological abuse was unbelievable, the psychological blackmailing that he did with me particularly putting on me that I was responsible for my mother and my three brothers' happiness. Um, 
you know, I mean, that that's probably been the hardest thing for me to deal with in um, in in ex- not accepting, but in coming to some sort of understanding of my relationship with Michael now because I always, Michael and I being the twins, we were the eldest, so we were always together. You know, we went to the same school. We were often in the same class together. We had the same little group of friends. Um, you know, we joined the, the Salesian Order together. There's just such a strong commonality between us but then to actually go on to and, and to have that pressure put on me by my father that, you know, you are responsible for your brother's happiness. So it was this whole dilemma of, oh, my God, I'm responsible for my brother's happiness. Clearly Michael was not happy if he had to seek out, you know, sexual gratification from children. So I must have failed yet again in my responsibility. It's that so hard to have that placed on you and, yeah, made doubly hard because of, as you said, that whole thing about you've got to stay silent, you know, this is our secret, you can't speak about it. And it's a shame. Like, I, you, you don't speak about it because you just feel such guilt and shame and that you're so dirty and disgusting and that you must have brought it on yourself. And, um, yeah, it's it's very hard. And so to be projecting to the outside world the image of being a nun, mm. which – and I'm, I grew up a Catholic kid, so I understand the perfection involved in that. How is it to live daily with that dichotomy? with feeling shameful and dirty inside and to be projecting the image outside of perfection? I think for me, one thing is the church and certainly the convent life became a sanctuary for me. Mm. It, it was a place where I could actually hide away. With women. With women, exactly. With women, yeah. Exactly. And I didn't need an excuse or I didn't I was never questioned if I wanted to spend, you know, hours sitting in the chapel just being in the chapel, mm. you know, because well that's what nuns do. So although I would be in there um because I was hiding away and I was so depressed, but it wasn't questioned because as I said, nuns do that. So it was a sanctuary for me. And I think the other big thing for me was that you know, before I became a nun, I was convinced I was going to hell, you know, because I, I'd i been sexually abused um, by my father. So, you know, that was my fault. I'd been abused by a Salesian priest. So I was definitely damned for that because, oh, my God, you know, we, we grew up as Catholics learning that a priest takes Jesus' place on earth. So there I am as it's obviously my fault that I've been sexually abused by a priest because he's taking Jesus' place. There's no way he would do it. So I I was convinced I was damned and going to hell. So for me to go into the convent, it was twofold. One was it was a sanctuary and a hiding place away from my father. But secondly, it was like I was trying to... uh, 
you know, make up for the the terrible wrong I'd done and 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 basically, you know, atone for my sins, I suppose, so that hopefully if I spent enough time, you know, in the chapel praying and doing God's work as a nun, then maybe I wouldn't go to hell. Have you spoken to many other victims? Um, of, of sexual, sexual abuse, ab- yeah. Um, in general or by priests? Yeah. No, well, no, um, in general. I'm just wondering if uh, I'm sure you are aware you're, you're a really intelligent woman and I'm sure you've done lots of research as well, but I, yeah. just of, of how common it is to be assaulted by multiple perpetrators. You know that that's not uncommon and that that's not about you. And Yeah, yeah. 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 I certainly have um, spoken to a lot over the years. Um, particularly in recent history, because that's where I've um, been more empowered to actually recognise it was not my fault. No. Um, So once I could get my head around being totally convinced that it was not my fault and that I've got myself in the position through my, you know, many years of, of, of healing and professional help, I'm, I'm very confident in speaking out about it. And so because I've been doing that, people have been more open to basically approaching me and opening up. Yeah. And and that's happening more and more. And you're doing it now for other people too, because I, I think that's one of the most debilitating aspects, isn't it? That's one of the things that's always made it even harder for people to speak out is that so many people have multiple abusers. And exactly. That, and that makes them more ashamed. That makes them more likely to think it's me, there's something exactly. about me, I invite oh, totally. this. Yeah. Exactly, and that's 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 the damaging side of it. Yeah. Um, you're totally right. It, it's got to be me because it wasn't mm. just one person; it's multiple people. Mm. Um, or, oh my God, yeah, I obviously attract these people. The priest that you initially spoke to, the first person you ever told about your father's abuse, and he said, "Okay, yes. I'll, I'll counsel you," and then he abused you. Yeah, he was then very remorseful, wasn't he? And he like he was. Yeah, what was his story? He, so he he so when I went to the church and and um, told them that I'd been abused by two priests and I was also you know tried to give them information about Michael, so that they investigated. So they went to both priests and one priest he denied it, and the second priest he was the one who said yes I I actually did mm. abuse her. And he gave actually more detail about the length of, of, you know, it happened over about a three-month period, regularly over three months, and what he actually did, he gave more information than what I'd actually given the authorities. And so he said, yes, I've, I've basically been waiting for, for this to come out. And and he stepped down from his position as, as a priest but I know, I know for a fact that the the church basically told him, "Forget it, get back to church. You, you know, get back to your job. Mm. We need you doing your, you know, priestly role." And he did actually write a letter to me, which appears in in my book, where he says that he's sorry um, for pain that he must have caused me. But regardless of of him being remorseful, saying he's sorry and that he's aware that he's caused me pain, he's still a priest. I mean, to this day, he's still a practising priest. So he's around people. He's around all ages of people. 
you know, like nothing. He's he hasn't been, to my knowledge, reprimanded or anything. I, I just can't fathom how you can have somebody like myself make an allegation about somebody committing an offence. He admits the offence, and he gets off scot free. Like nothing happens. I. I just feel so much for victims because we are not set up to support victims. People say, oh, well, go to the police and and all of that. Well, you know, you can do that, and I've done that. But, you know, as I say, you could take it to court, but our courts aren't set up for it either. Every time... A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I went to say something more about my brother or the priests, I was put back into the hands of the Salesian Order. So there they are trying to protect their name and their people. And the abuse that they put on me was disgusting. Painting me as being, you know, mentally deranged and I'm hateful and the slaying of my character was unfathomable. If you tried to go to court, you know, the, the lawyers will just tear strips off you. You know, so for, for a victim to actually stand up in court and give evidence, it takes such a strength and courage because they are going to be crucified. And that's just not right. That's it's so wrong. And I mean, that's what keeps a lot of victims still, I believe, in silence because to go through actually speaking out to anybody is is huge. But to actually take it a step further and actually go to authorities like the, the church or the police or whatever it is, it, it takes tremendous courage to do that. Margaret Harrod's book, co-written with journalist Sue Smethurst, is called Blood on the Rosary. It's available through the bookshop on our website, australiantruecrimepodcast.com. There's even more to the story than we've spoken about in this episode, so do get a copy of the book. It's very good. After the break, we'll talk about the ups and downs of Margaret's life in recent years. Coming up on Australian True Crime, Margaret tells us 
where some of her abusers are now. But first, where does Margaret Harrod, a woman who's been so victimised since she was two years old, get the courage to take on a monolith like the Catholic Church? It takes tremendous courage to do everything that you have done and that you are doing. Where do you think your courage has come from? You are a person who was silenced from such a young age and Mm -hmm. have had so much thrown against you from such powerful forces from your Mm. father Mm. to the Catholic Church. Where does your courage come from? This will sound, you know, really contradictory, I suppose. But for me, my courage still comes from my God. Now... You know, my God, I've always, my relationship with my God is still really strong. Now, that doesn't mean I haven't questioned it over time, but, you know, my my relationship with my God has always, I've grown up with that. So I grew up with attending a church uh, because my father was always heavily involved in a church. So in the beginning, you know, it was the Church of England church. He used to play the organ. Then we moved on to being the Catholic church. So I've never really lost that completely. And for me now, it's, it's not church as in, you know, institutional church. It's my personal relationship with my God. And most of that I find, I experience that relationship when I'm out in nature, basically. So that's why I just love getting out, walking and being in nature, because for me, that's uplifting. So that's one aspect. The second really important aspect is the love and support I've had from my husband, Rod. That has certainly been a huge force for helping me to basically still be alive if we want to get to the nitty-gritty because there certainly have been times where I've felt I need to just, you know, end my life because I can't bear it any longer um, it's too painful, and I believed that my husband and two children would be better off without me around. But that didn't happen. And as I said, my Rod has never failed in his love and support of me, and we've now been together about thirty five years. And certainly the the love of my two children, Jason and Nicola, is a source of huge joy for me. So I think ultimately it probably comes down to those two factors. First of all, my personal relationship with my God, which gives me like an inner an inner strength, like something to actually hang on to. And then definitely the the love of, of Rod and my two children. Yeah. Mm. So your twin brother, Michael, pleaded guilty in 2011 to multiple charges of indecent assault Yes, a child. Yes. He was given a two-year jail sentence with 15 months suspended and he served a total of nine months. Mm. A further three victims came forward in 2016 and he was again convicted and jailed. Have you spoken to him ever about it? Where, where is your relationship now with your twin brother, Michael? So Michael and I have not had any contact with each other for 11, 12 years now. I've I've tried to reach out to him. So I haven't actually had any contact with Michael um, since before 2011. So 
I I didn't even know that he'd been charged with those offences and that he'd, he'd gone to jail. I found that out through a friend who saw it in the media and I've tried to reach out to Michael. I'm not on his visitors list, so I can't, you know, go and see him. I've written to him, but I've had no responses back. So it it really does hurt me that I, I've got no idea. Yeah, I just want to go and see him and talk to him. And that's what I tried to express in, well, I tried to do that when we still were having some sort of contact but he would, he would just never, it was always no no go zone, never talked about anything like that. And then, yeah, since he's he's been um, in jail and he served those nine months and then he actually came back to, to live in Canberra where I am because that's where he was living prior to, to going to jail for those nine months. Uh, we never, never had any contact. Yeah, so... It's amazing. I've got twins. I've got nine-year-old twins. Have you? Yes. Yeah. And it is uh, amazing to think of one of them denying access to the other, yeah. uh, refusing for that long a period, especially as if we go back to the beginning of our conversation, when he first got in serious trouble and realised that it was actually happening, that he had been found out and... yeah. The first place he came to was your house in Canberra. Exactly. Exactly. Where did he go? Mm. Where did he feel that he could find a safe hiding place? It was with me, you know? Yeah. And it, it's so ironic that – and that's why I tried desperately to to support him and get him to, you know, look, talk to me. Well, don't you think, though, that it's because – as a – Twin mother, it seems to me that he knows he can't lie to you. Yeah. I I also... What do you think? I also... I think a lot of it's got to do with the fact that because because he knew that my father had abused me. Like, I'd already told my brothers about Mm. that. So Michael already knew and Michael had also knew that... Two Salesian priests had abused me. Mm. Now, that was – Michael found that out after he'd actually come back to, to you know, live with me. But I, I – You think he can't face you? I think a lot of it is that he can't face me. I know the time that I went to tell him about the two priests that abused me, he couldn't stay in the room. He had to leave the room and he also said to me, don't tell me who they were because clearly he would have known them. Mm. So he said, don't tell me. So it was like he can't face up to the fact that they have sexually abused his twin sister because he knows very well that he has abused other people, children, young people. And I think that's what it basically comes down to is that he has seen what sexual abuse has done to me, the pain that it's caused me and, you know, the hospitalisations it's caused me. When he sees me, I believe that it just brings to the front of his mind, oh, my God, I have caused that pain on other people. So he can't face that. Makes it real. It makes it totally real. And so for him to be, you know, 
to to be in the company of his sister or to face his sister, even though he, he felt I was the only place he could go to hide, it it's just that whole oh, my God, you know, what have I done? That's a really interesting theory because, yeah, we know a lot of people who sexually abuse children convince themselves that it's not hurting the child, the child doesn't Mm. know what's happening, blah, Mm. blah, blah. But, yeah, that's interesting. In you, he sees that it absolutely is hurting the child. I think so. And it's hurting the adult. Exactly. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because if I think back to, you know, my experience, which is the common experience, is that particularly if you're abused from a young age, the perpetrator continues repeatedly to say, you know, I love you and, you know, this is our special time and, you know, this is our special playtime. So, you know, that's what keeps you in the silence too and what creates this huge dilemma in your mind is to, well, hang on, uh, particularly if it's a, a, you know, a close relative like a father or, mm. you know, grandfather or even a mother. They say they love me. I mean, my father told me when I confronted my father, he said again, that's absolute rubbish. I love you. It's an expression of my love for you. And, I mean, he convinced himself that that was the truth. I think, you know, that, I mean, how warped is that? But no wonder the victims in our minds were just so confused because you, you're getting that mixture. I love you. This is an expression of my love for you. It's our special time, you know. You're my. I love you so much. You're my little girl. On the other side, you think, but hang on a minute. Why does it feel so yucky and why does it hurt? Not to mention the fact that children, of course, don't know what's happening in other households. We can convince them that this happens everywhere and that it's normal. And It's normal. That's right. Yeah. And that's the whole thing. It, it was years before I actually could accept that, oh, my God, I actually I don't think this actually probably does go on in other people's. You know, my, my little friends at school, I don't think it happens to them. But, I mean, it's years before you realise that because how are you supposed to know what goes on behind closed doors, you know? So, yeah. You were an adult, weren't you, by the time you um, confronted your dad? Yes, I was. I confronted my father after I'd left the convent, so I was about 29. That's extraordinary. Uh, That's another thing I think a lot of us don't realise is that oftentimes abuse in families goes on into adulthood. Yeah, totally. Well, my father continued to abuse me till I was like 21 and left home to join the convent. So that was like my escape. I I didn't see it like that at the time, but it was later on that I realised, yeah, well, actually, me having the sanctuary, this is what's confusing in my mind too. Well, it's not now because I understand it, but I think it could be very confusing for people from the outside hearing my story, is that going into the convent, as I said previously, was my sanctuary. It was my saving place. It was my safe place. It was also my way of getting away from my father. But I didn't consciously think of that at the time. I really thought God was calling me to be a nun and that's what I was doing. So although the church has really let me down, and I've been abused by two priests, at the same time, my relationship with my God is strong because basically it was my relationship with God that I believe saved me. So it took me into the convent away from my father because there was no way. I mean, he'd made it perfectly clear to me because I'd started as I got 
you know, an older teenager really trying to stand up against my father, which only led to him getting angry and getting more, like, physically rough with me. So I, I had to back right down because, yeah, I was starting to get afraid of what he might do. And, I mean, he'd made it perfectly clear to me that no man would ever have me. The only way I could get away from him was basically if I did join the church. So when I told him I was joining the convent, he said he got really angry, firstly, that he said, so if I can't have you, then the church can, but no man will ever have you. So, you know, it's that, yeah. I've been very badly hurt by the church, but the church in a way saved me too. Well, I know some people who are still very comforted by Catholicism and who struggle with it because of this terrible revelations that we've lived through. And and yeah. I find that so sad. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. It, it really saddens me. And some of the emails and messages that I've received um, from people that have, have, have read my story, um, that comes across loud and clear, is that they are so saddened by other people's experiences of church. Um, and look, I'll be the first, and I try to say that in the book too, there are a lot of very good, dedicated, trustworthy priests out there. Mm. They're not all pedophiles, clearly, and there's a lot of priests that I believe, well, not only the priests, but, you know, Catholics, as you've said, as a whole, Mm. that are broken and so sad to think that the church that they love and loyally serve and attend has this big, you know, black cloud there. Mm. You know, it must break break their hearts. And and I know the very dear friend of mine still, Father Chris, who I mention in my book, you know... He, he, on a number of occasions with me, has cried because of the pain that he sees the church that he loves has caused me. Unfortunately, it seems like the wrong people carry the shame of it. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and he has apologised on behalf of priests and behalf of the church for the pain that I've, I've, I've been, you know, forced to wear. But it shouldn't be him that has to do it. I should have. All I wanted was if the if the Salesian priest had have just said, look, Margaret, we're really sorry. How can we genuinely support you? But they don't do that. They 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 don't seem to be able to do that. You know, there's a bit of lip service at times. But this was the church that I'd devoted so much of my time and energy and life to, and yet it's like, oh, I'm a troublemaker to them. So they can't bear to have me, you know, saying anything. They've got to paint me as as the issue, as the problem, I think. Mm, and yet I think in your book you do such a good job of describing the comfort that it's brought to you in those moments. And yeah. you, you really, you write about the convent actually in such a beautiful way that takes me back to moments in high school when I would sort of just get a glimpse of, of it and just the beauty of it. 
I loved my life in the convent. I really did. And and it actually took me years to actually and, and even now I have a real fondness for that life and miss a whole aspect of it. Yeah. I I felt in a lot of ways my father robbed me of having that life. Because once I'd realised, um, I'd, I'd started seeing a psychologist regularly, and once I realised that, oh, far out, you know, I've actually joined the convent for the wrong reasons. I joined the convent to escape my father, you know, and I had to sort of reconcile with myself, well, no, actually, God hasn't called me to live my, the rest of my life as a nun. And, like, I wouldn't change my married life at all. I mean, it's been absolutely wonderful. So I suppose in a way I've been blessed to have two, you know, wonderful experiences. One is a married person that's been able to be loved and love and, and have children and and also a wonderful experience within, you know, a convent. So, but, yeah, it's in a way my father robbed me of, of that convent life because it was just I loved it. I really did. You know, I had the the joy of um, the sanctuary and like a peaceful environment, but at the same time I was teaching, which is my was another passion. I don't know. <laughs> oh, God, you don't have to know everything. You know heaps though, Margaret. <laughs> you do know heaps, you know, more than most of us could ever know. You're, um, you're incredible. You're, you really are. You're, the, the depth of your self-knowledge and uh, your courage is quite amazing. What would you like to do now, now that you've written the book, and um, I know that you're doing a lot of public speaking, I'm sure a lot of people are contacting you. What would you like to do next? So my first psychologist, when I went to him, he said to me, the greatest gift I can give you is the gift of speech. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget that because at the time I'd been robbed of my gift of speech. You know, I'd been in silence for so long and I was unable to talk about what had happened to me. So over time with him, he helped me to actually gain my voice and to be able to express what happened to me and that certainly has been a big part of my healing journey over the years is that I actually have been able to find my voice. I've been given back that gift of speech, well, given the gift that I never had <laughs> because it was never developed. And part of that is is being able to write as well. So as I said, that's been a huge part of my healing journey and given me a lot of clarity in unravelling what's gone on for me. So for me now, to have that gift of speech, to me, is a huge blessing. And what I'm finding is I've been blessed with lots of opportunity to actually continue to be a voice within the community. And in my own realm, in my community here in Canberra where I live, I'm being approached more and more by individuals who, you know, want to have a chat. That hearing my story has brought up things for them and so I'm more than happy to be able to actually, you know, I feel very honoured to be approached by people who feel that they trust me to actually 
start to open up. And so if I can begin giving people the hope, the inspiration to actually start to find their voice, then I feel that the hard job of writing the book is well worth it. Oh, God, I bet it was hard. I bet you shed a million tears. Yeah, it was certainly took its toll. But, and like when Sue Smithers first approached me and said, Margaret, we need to write your story. And I'm saying, oh, mm. it's only my story. Like, <laughs> you know, it's no big deal. And she said, no, it is a big deal. Yeah, it is. And, and, and so she said, you can make such a difference. And I thought, oh, all right. So once I started the writing process and actually, uh, to be honest, it was, wasn't until we had the final draft in our hands and so we both sat down and, you know, I just sort of read it from cover to cover over, you know, a day and a half. And it was then that I actually did cry and was able to say, you know what, I actually am pretty proud of yeah. where I'm at now. Good, I'm so glad. <laughs> and that was the that was the first time I'd been able to actually say that. Um, oh, I'm so yeah. glad that you should be. It's worth it for that. I'm so glad. Yeah, thank you. So yeah, and I always said if I. In writing the book, if it helps one person to actually find their their voice and to be able to find a bit of peace in their life, then it's all worthwhile. But fortunately, it's it's impacting way more than I thought it might. So, was your brother Michael abused by your father? I get asked that lots of times. Um, there is no evidence that he was, and I certainly asked each of my three brothers that question when I told them that Dad abused me, and they all claimed he didn't. I can't say 100%, but there's certainly no evidence, and certainly um, I, I, I believe two of my brothers definitely. I certainly don't believe he was sexually abused, no. I believe that he well and truly could claim that he was emotionally abused, but I don't believe that he was sexually abused, no. I I would think that if they were, they had an opportunity to say so. Yeah, definitely, and I can't imagine why they wouldn't, given the example that you've set. No, that's right. And the bravery that you've shown. Thank you. That's Margaret Harrod, whose book, Blood on the Rosary, co-authored by Sue Smethurst, is available now. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.